This reading serves as the basis for the message today, the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the second chapter. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the King. Amen. One day this past summer, while Alyssa and I were visiting the country of Israel, we had the opportunity to visit the biblical site of Beersheba. Now, this is the place that God called Abraham to settle in when he called him out of the nations. Out of Ur of Chaldea, he told him to come and settle in this place called Beer. Sheba is also the place that he was told that his offspring would become a great nation. He was made promises by God that he would receive a son in his old age who would then have many children and by whom all nations and all generations would be blessed. Now the site itself kind of sits on an open and exposed desert plateau, right? So it looks over a road, a desert road, that bisects open wilderness on both sides. To the north, there's nothing. To the south, there's nothing. East and west, there's still nothing. Just an open plateau in the middle of the desert. The sun beats down on it. There's nothing to to block the sun, no shade. The wind rips through the site at a torrid pace, even on the calmest of days. And one can't help but reflect on the promises made to Abraham at this site and how he waited for 25 long years for the Lord to provide a promised son. Think of the monotony of his days, waking up every day, going about his business, restitching his tent that's cut by the harsh winds, shepherding his flock. Every day he would wake up for over 9,000 days, that's 25 years, waiting 
and longing for the Lord to provide. And yet the doldrum beat on. The constant whip of the wind was the only tune his ears could hear as he sat there waiting for the Lord to provide. Now, why have I told you that story? Well, actually, I'm going to ask you to kind of pocket it and put it to the side for a second. We're going to come back, and it will make a lot more sense later in the sermon. But right now, I want to talk to you about the Magi. The Magi in our reading for today, they come to see the newborn baby King Jesus. While on their way, they run into King Herod, the political king of the country of Israel. And they also run into his court, which Herod has gathered together. This is the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, all the Jewish, religious, important people are gathered together. And the Magi come and they ask him, hey, we're looking for this king, where is he at? And it says that they're all troubled by this news. All of them are upset to hear that the Messiah has come. In fact, it says that the whole city of Jerusalem is troubled by the news that the Savior has come to be with them. Imagine that. Everyone is troubled by it. The place where God has abided with Israel for generations in Jerusalem, that city fears his coming. This really gets at the heart of Herod, doesn't it? You see, Herod has a heart of protection. And I don't mean this in a good sense. I'm not saying he's a selfless king that would lay down his life for his people or or do what's best for them or do anything selfless at all. No, I'm saying it's a bad kind of protection. You see, Herod protects things like his plans, his desires, his ability to sin, and his power. He guards all of these things in his heart. Imagine being so turned in on yourself and so protective of your sinful choices you would actually be troubled to hear that the Savior of the universe has come to save you. Because this might mean that you'd have to give up some trivial things like power or admiration or respect or wealth, things that are, have no comparison to the glory that Jesus is bringing. But you guard those things so tightly that you're upset that Jesus is bringing something else. Imagine being so blinded by your will to keep something like political power that you would order the murder of innocent baby boys to vanquish your chosen foe, King Jesus. Herod had an evil heart that longed to protect the bad things of this world, to keep them. Thank goodness that none of us ever do that. Oh, wait. We do that all the time. Every day we do everything that Herod did in his life. Now we might not go about it in exactly the same way, but we have all the recognizable markers, all the same sins that Herod did. We murder our enemies, not physically, but with our words. We go on Twitter and we type about people we've never met, never seen, presidents, celebrities, slander them. We talk bad about our bosses or our friends behind their backs. We make jokes about them every day. We protect our monetary wealth. We guard that in our heart, lacking the trust in the Lord to provide what we need in the right season. We crave the admiration of our friends, our colleagues, our bosses, 
And we're even willing to do questionable and maybe even sinful things to get that admiration. In our hearts, we protect our sinful choices that we've already made by justifying our actions that we've done in the past. We rationalize our sin, don't we? Oh, that was okay because dot, dot, dot. Further, we protect our ability to sin by choosing not to recognize the real pain and suffering that our choices have caused other people in their lives. We just kind of gloss over it. Maybe our hearts protect all that is evil, just like King Herod's does. There's a huge split between our heart, King Herod's heart, and God's heart, our true king, Jesus Christ. You see, we are steeped in protection of what's evil, but God, God is the heart of a good king. He's a good king, unlike Herod. He is a heart of provision and not protection. We have a king who gives all good things in the right time and the right season that we need them. And when humanity needed it most, God gave us the ultimate provision in his son. Now let's explore how humanity's protection has been overcome by our king's provision. You know, I think all kings long to provide for the people that they rule over. Even the most evil dictators in the world long to provide something for their people, even if it's just a positive image of themselves in the minds of their followers. But truly great earthly kings long to provide good things for their people. Things like food, water, security, a home, all these sorts of things that we need every day to survive. And similarly, our king longs to provide for us as well. Our king has a heart of provision. Now, the Magi in our text for today, they originate from an area near modern-day Iraq. It's actually where the, the kingdom of Babylon in ancient times used to be, about 500 years before Jesus was born. So they used to be in the courts of the kings of Babylon, these magi did. Now they didn't hold any government position, right? They weren't actually rulers over anything, but they were very influential in the courts of the kings of Babylon. They would do certain things that other people just didn't have the ability to do. For instance, they would interpret the king's dreams. They'd tell him what it means, what the future holds, Similarly, they would use astronomy and astrology to look up at the stars and forecast the future for the king. And last but not least, they would do magic. Magic that would be both for entertainment and to curse people that the king was enemies with. It's actually where we get the word magic from, is magi. So they're influential people, they're important in the king's court, and in the book of Daniel, about 500 years before Christ is born, the magi are asked by King Nebuchadnezzar to do something important for him. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar's starting to think that maybe they're just telling him what he wants to hear. He doesn't have any way of actually knowing that these magi are producing the truth when they tell him what his dreams mean. So he has this dream that he's had many nights in a row, and it keeps him up, and it bothers him. And he tells the Magi, I want you first to tell me what my dream even is, and then second, I want you to tell me what my dream means. Of course, the Magi are incapable of doing this. 
They couldn't possibly know what ran through the king's head while he was asleep at night. So the king is so upset that he says, I'm going to kill all the magi in my kingdom. Because he thinks that he's been lied to, basically. They've just been making things up. So he rounds up all the magi, and he's getting ready to kill all of them. But then Daniel, a Jew, who's in Babylonian captivity, tells King Nebuchadnezzar, give me one day, I'll ask God what it means, and then I'll tell you tomorrow. So he gets his one day, and he comes back, and he tells the king exactly what his dream is. And then he tells him what it means for the future. The king is so happy that he relents of his will to kill the magi, and he lets them go free. Now, because of this witness through Daniel and through the sparing of their lives by the Lord, the Magi are made aware of who Yahweh is and what Yahweh does, that he's the one true God. And now it's quite possible that they patiently waited for the Lord's anointed one to be sent many generations. For 500 years, they would pass down this wisdom to their children and their children's children, waiting for the new king who would reign for all time. One day, they finally see the sign in the stars, a place that only they would be looking and a place that only they could interpret it as astronomers and astrologers. And they realize that the king has come. The king is here. They eagerly travel to see the newborn eternal God lying in a manger. And as an offering of gratitude, both for who this new king is and for what this new king had already done for them in their own lives by sparing their ancestors, they bring an offering, an offering of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now keep in mind that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are incredibly poor people. They have very little monetary wealth at all. And so these things that that are brought to them, these offerings from the Magi, are of considerable monetary value. Now, King Herod, keep in mind, he has this evil protective heart, and he has ordered the murder of all baby boys in Bethlehem, trying to kill Jesus. So this family of poor peasants has to make a long, expensive journey down into Egypt to escape Herod's evil, protective heart. So the Lord uses the Magi's faith, which he provided them with, to then provide for his son. Now this escape route would have taken Jesus, Mary, and Joseph south, right? And the last stop in Israel on the road that they would have taken... It's a road called the Way of the Patriarchs that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have sort of established, right? It goes right by the last settlement in the south of Israel. And that settlement is Beersheba. Beersheba. The city where Abraham was promised by God that his seed would bless all generations. In fact, the road would have passed by close enough that if Abraham were still alive when Jesus was born... He could have taken a few steps out of his tent, looked off the edge of the plateau, and seen the Lord passing by his own home. God provided for the Magi by saving them in Babylon. He then provided for them by bringing them into the fold of his promised people. 
by giving them the faith that they had no hope for. You see, those who had no hope, being the Magi, were given hope. Those who had no faith were provided with faith. And those who had no shot at eternal life, and who really had no shot at temporal life, they were about to die, were given both temporal and eternal life. And then God used the faith that He produced in the Magi to produce for His own Son. Tradition holds that the gifts that they brought funded their journey down into Egypt. And as the Lord traveled, He walked by the very place that He was first promised to Abraham and to the Jewish people, fulfilling His word and providing for them and for us a Savior who is Christ the King. Now, what does our king's heart longing to provide mean for all of you? What have you been provided with? You, like the Magi, have no claim on the promises made to the Jewish people. You have no hope on eternal life, no claim on it at all. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, you now have a full share at the table with all believers in Jesus And that table that we sit at, it has red wine stains everywhere because our cup just keeps running over with provision. The same provision given to the Magi is now yours. You who have no hope have been given hope in Jesus. You have faith, hope, and your eternal life has been spared forever. Just as the infant Christ lay in great peril from the sins of King Herod, you too lie in tremendous peril from the punishment that would be coming to you for your own sins. We are evil, tremendously evil. We have hearts that long to protect everything that is bad in this world, and we put everything above God that's not important. We lack trust in the Lord, and we lean on our own understanding. We do it all the time. We take out those in our way. We willingly abuse other people to elevate ourselves, even if it's just a little joke behind their back. But you see, in Christ, God has given you an escape, just like He gave Christ an escape. An escape from sin, death, the devil, and eternal damnation. Christ has provided you with freedom. Every chain has been broken. Just like Abraham, God has made all of you certain promises. In Abraham, we find a faithful man waiting on the Lord to fulfill his word, waiting for many, many years, hoping that the Lord would come. And Abraham saw those promises fulfilled. He was provided for. First in his son Isaac that came to him in his old age, and then from heaven as he saw the Lord passing by his home, the ultimate fulfillment. And just like Abraham, you too will see God's ultimate provision unfold, his final promise being fulfilled. When the trumpets sound and our Lord descends from the clouds in the east, you will finally see God's heart that longs to provide for you be ultimately satisfied when He provides everything and the last thing that you'll ever need. 
A time when you will have perfect freedom, perfect safety, perfect forgiveness, perfect pleasure, and perfection away from the effects of this sinful world. God's perfect provision has given us well beyond what we deserve and well beyond what we even really need. I think the real question now is, how does this change our lives? What are we going to do about it? What should we be doing as a response? We'll learn from the wise men. The wise men do four things. They saw, they fell down, they worshipped, and they offered him gifts. It's an instructive progression. I'm going to say those again. They saw, they fell down, they worshipped, and they offered him gifts. Now, we have all seen God's work at play in our lives. That's why we're here today. And the next step is to rationally and spiritually comprehend that Jesus is our Savior, that He has come to save us from our sins. The third step is to fall down in awe and worship Him, not out of fear, but out of praise and wonder. You see, falling down is naturally an act of submission. You expose yourself, and when we submit, we release all those things that our heart has been protecting. All those evil things go away. And we allow the Lord to simply provide what we need in that moment. He gives us all that we need in that time. Now, we need to not have a sinful heart that longs to protect our earthly goods, but a heart that's like our king's, the heart that longs to provide. And so we give our lives, that's the fourth step, everything that we have we give back to Jesus Christ because He's given us everything. He didn't hold anything back at all. He didn't even hold back His life. He provided everything He had to us. And so we go on providing those who don't have the Word, the Word of God. We provide those who don't have hope with hope. We provide those who don't have faith with faith We clothe the naked, we feed the hungry, we shelter the homeless. All the things that God has provided us with, He has equipped us to go out and provide to the world, to all other people. It's our job now to give back. Learn from the Magi. See your King at work in your life and give Him your whole life. Amen. We have a weekly awakening question. Maybe. Is it up there? I guess I'll just read it. Um, The weekly awakening question is, oh, there it is. How will the heart of King Jesus shape your life? How will the heart of King Jesus shape your life?